Uh, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this week as we step for just one more week out of the Gospel of Luke. And um, we'll start in verse 11. Now, there's a rumor that I need to dispel before we start. You might have seen me kind of hobbled around here. Um, Chris Jones did not injure me in a leg wrestling contest. <laughs> Okay, he did not slay another victim for himself. I was foolish and thought I could still play basketball, and the Lord continues to teach me that lesson over and over again that that ship has sailed. So I hope it's not too much of a distraction for you today. As we always do at the crossing, why don't you stand to your feet, and we will join together in the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and starting in verse 11. It says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are what we are is known to God, and I <clears throat> hope that it is known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast out, in outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He has died for all, that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray here today, that by the power of Your Spirit, we as a church body would grow closer to one another and draw nearer to You. I pray that the words that Paul penned all those years ago to reconcile with the church in Corinth would be a balm to the wounds of our heart today. That in turn, if we would allow it, we would become more like the bride You are asking for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, let me fix my thingamajigger here. If you're in the church long enough, you're absolutely going to deal with uh, what we would identify today as, you know, church hurt, deception, or hurt feelings, mistreatment between you or somebody you love. I can say that surely of myself. There are people, even today, I'll confess to you, that are brothers and sisters in Christ, and when I see them, my heart rate starts to rise. We have to ask the question, 
How do Christians deal with tension, fractured relationships like these? We don't want to be like the world, like fist fighting or maybe now like taking to Twitter. So we in our noble Christianity, what do we do? We see somebody at Target and we turn the other way. We pretend that when we see them at the red light, we are staring off into space at something so interesting. Maybe an owl or something has passed us by. We struggle just like the world does with reconciliation. When we're mistreated, when we're offended, when there's a chasm or a wound between two people, it becomes a hard thing to bridge. Now, it's one thing when it's like trivial. You know, I hurt my, got my feelings hurt, or you said that you didn't like my shoes, or whatever. But I think there's a way that it can be far more serious. Let me show you this picture. Uh, this is a gentleman by the name of Matt Swazell, and in October of 2006, he was a rookie firefighter in Georgia. And after a 24-hour shift, as a very young, by his own admission, kind of a relatively nominal Christian, he had fallen asleep at the wheel crossed over those fateful yellow lines and crashed into another car in a head-on collision where he killed a woman and a seven-month-old baby. She was pregnant. Sorry, seven-month-old pregnancy. There he is. Now, my question to you is, men specifically, how would you respond to such tragedy? If you were sitting next to the person that did this to your family in the Christian church, would your heart rate rise? I would think so. Man, I even think that you might be thinking of tragic things. Even the women in here, certainly. Uh, an, uh, an abducted child. Or an invader in your home. We go through this process. What would we do? How would we respond? Ladies and gentlemen, we draw lines in the sand of our heart. And if that line is crossed, some of the words and works of Jesus fade into the back of our mind and we try to enact judgment ourselves. Now, are there moments when we must defend ourselves? Absolutely. And thank God for able-bodied men and women who can do just that. But I would ask you to even just consider lines that have been drawn in your heart that aren't as dramatic. You might couch it like this, well, that's just the way I'm wired. I can't stand that person because you know they just bother me. We just don't, you know, we just don't connect. Even back where I'm from in Pueblo, my grandmother used to say, "Well, that's just a picadillo." I really don't know what a picadillo is, but it sounds like it belongs in this part of the sermon. In the church today, we are supposed to and called to look like, behave like, and feel like something other than the rest of the world could possibly manufacture. And in many ways, I would say that that's true, especially here. I'm so grateful for so many of you. But we must agree, we have division and tension and unreconcilable differences right in the church. And it looks just like the world. I plead with you to consider that the issues with the church today are not just caused by global, big, dramatic blows that she's taken over time. The church is wounded by self-inflicted wounds of unreconciliation. Years of piled up resentment, unforgiveness, 
and bitterness. And I ask you this morning to consider this question. Have you participated in the wounding of Christ's bride? We confront a passage like this after such a heavy question, and I want to tell you that we're given great hope from Paul. The words of Paul to this church in Corinth are designed to both help that church and encourage them, and the same for us today. He provides a hope with this phrase that he uses again and again and again as a central teaching. He's saying we can reconcile, we can do this, we can bridge the gap, we can close the wound because we are a new creation. That's the phrase that he gives us hope in. So my prayer this morning is that we would be stretched to work for the Spirit, sorry, by the work of the Spirit to understand even more the hope we have as new creations. And that as such, we, the body of Christ, may do the work necessary to heal the wounds we have caused His bride. So then, we're going to explore what I'm calling implications of the new creation. Now, I could give a 27-part sermon on the implications of being a new creation. What we're going to do is just kind of focus in on what Paul says here about the implications. There are four of them. The four implications we find in this passage are we are ambassadors. We have a ministry of reconciliation. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. And number four, we are controlled by the love of Christ. Now, let's just quickly... Get our bearings here with this letter. I don't know if this church has ever preached through 2 Corinthians. Maybe you haven't been there in a little while. Um, Paul is working with a church in Corinth that he planted, and there's a little tension there. People are starting to um, not want to follow Paul, and as such, there's this correspondence that develops between Paul who's away, planning and working in another area, back and forth between this church and Corinth. And they're saying to him, Paul, we just don't really know if you are what you say you are. You kind of dress bad. You're not really eloquent with speech. I think you're smart, but if you were blessed by God, would you be shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten? You just don't look the part. He had lots of misfortune. And so Paul's corresponding back and forth with them, correcting them, exhorting them and encouraging them. Eventually, some of these members in the church in Corinth realize they're wrong. And they write to Paul or send message to Paul that they want to be reconciled. And as they wait their response, what we find in this letter in 2 Corinthians is Paul's response. That of course, he wants to be reconciled. The question is how? And that's where we get to the idea of being a new creation. If you would... Put your heads down, look into the Bible, and I want you to notice on verse 17. Verse 17 is the central theme or the main point of what Paul is trying to talk about here, and it's where we'll begin our study today. If we're going to talk about the implications of a new creation, we must first define what Paul means by a new creation. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Underline, circle, highlight that portion of your Bible that says, in Christ. Because that is a foundational doctrine to understanding the Christian life. We who are, in, or who are believers are in Christ. 
Now, I don't really look like I'm in Christ. What on earth does it mean? Paul says in Galatians 2.20, sharing a very similar theme here, he says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. God sent His Son Jesus to live a perfect life. And when He was displayed on the cross, if you will, He opened His perfect flesh up to any who might want to be saved would enter Him by faith. So the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, if I'm in Jesus, who died? I did. Now I appear to be alive and well. We're not talking about in our flesh. We're talking about in the eternal part of who we are. In our spirit. It doesn't seem like very good news. Carpenter died on the cross and I died with him. It's a tragic story. Turn the page. Because three days later, Christ resurrected. And if I'm in Christ, who raised with Him? I did. You, the believer, did. We are in Christ And as a new creation being reborn, this is the picture we find in baptism that I teached on a couple months ago, there are vast implications to who you are. Paul goes to great length in the book of Romans talking about how you used to behave this way and you're not supposed to behave that way anymore. Why? Because you're not the same thing. Christianity is not just an idea that we're trying to give people to chew on and munch on. This is not behavior modification. It is transformation. We're not here to give you a list of rules and principles on how to live your life. How to be a dad. We are here to call you to death and resurrection and reconciliation through the one person in all of history who could attain it. That is Jesus Himself. Now, we understand the new creation. Let's work into some of the implications. Like I said, there's four. Let's start with number one, and buckle up, we got a lot to get through here. Number one, if we are a new creation, then we are ambassadors. Why don't you turn down to chapter 5, verse 20 there. And it says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What Paul is trying to say is that there's far more that occurs in the Christian than just being saved. When we say the Gospels that Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead, and if you believe in Him, you go to heaven. That is the introduction of what the Gospel has done for you and I as new creations. Paul remind us here, reminds us here that those who have surrendered to Christ has, have also given up their personal status. In other words, you are, you thought you were, you were a slave to sin, but you thought you were the king of your own life. And when you are reconciled to God and made a new creation, you get a demotion. Praise God. You move down from the king of your life, you are conquered, and you surrender yourself, and you become an ambassador for the message of the king. An ambassador is one who represents the monarch, the message of the king. Verse 20, I love this portion, it says that God is making His appeal through us. Meaning God is sending a message to all the world through you. God has a legion of ambassadors and their names are you. You represent who Christ is. 
Many of us think, well, if you become a pastor, you become the mouthpiece of God and you're the person who represents them. No, that is shallow thinking. We all who are in Christ have surrendered ourselves and are now ambassadors to Him. Now, I don't have much experience with diplomatic ambassadorship personally. I'm from Pueblo. They don't, they don't do that to people like me. But I do have some experience with representing things. Namely, uh, I remember one time in high school, you know, it's the summer, and so I'm mowing lawns as my little side business, and my father comes outside and he says, I want you to go to the warehouse and pick up some boxes for me, on behalf of me, for my business. I say, sure, Pop, and in my little cut-off t-shirt, I jump into the car, and he's running down the street, waving his hands over his head. I stop, and I say, what? He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to get the boxes. He says, not dressed like that. I didn't know there was a dress code to get boxes. What do you mean I need to dress? And he looks me in the eyes, and my dad's not a very serious man, but there was a serious moment when he says, when you do anything for me or my business, everything you look like, Everything you say and everything you do represents the name on the top of this business. I said, well, do I need to go put like a shirt and a tie on? He said, let's just start with something with sleeves. If you will, as an application, I had to go into my bedroom and take that sleeveless t-shirt off and set it aside. And I had to put something on that was a better representation of the king. Maybe you could say it like this. I was made new before I could be an ambassador. Now, there's some takeaways here. What I want to do for each of these takeaways, each four of these points, I want to talk about how this implication affects our vertical relationship, what this means between you and God. And how does this relationship affect, namely, our relationships with brothers and sisters in the Lord? Paul is writing to a church. And so we will address it as such. Vertical relationship, number one. Some things to think about. To represent the king, you have to do three things. You have to know him, reflect him, and respond like him. To be an ambassador of the king, you have to know him. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, there is a Bible that sits in your lap. It is unique to any other thing ever written or ever penned because it is the very thing God uses to describe what kind of God he is like. There, are, there is no YouTube channel. There are not enough sermons in the world to help you know who you're representing other than reading your Bible. Number two, to reflect Him. We live in a world now in the Christian church that is um, expressive. We want to open ourselves up to being expressive. Now that's really taking place in the world at large, but I would say in the church as well. And we want to harbor that idea under the, the central doctrine of grace. We give grace to one another. We don't have to dress the same and have the same haircut. We, we provide grace for one another to express themselves. And I have no problem with that. And we have tattoos and piercings and people who wear certain things to church and people who never will. And, and it's, a, it's a wide array and I, I'm grateful to God for that. But I would just ask you this is who you are and what you wear and how you speak an expression of yourself or the one you represent? That is a question only you can answer in your own conscience. There is no Bible verse in here that I can tell you to go to about what you should and shouldn't do. I'm just asking you to be the best representation of who Jesus is in every facet of your being. And number three, we respond like Him. Your picadillos don't get a vote when you're an ambassador. 
Your pet peeves don't matter anymore when you are an ambassador. We don't lose agency in ourselves. That's not what I'm saying of you. I'm saying the agency that we become starts to align to who Christ is. Those pet peeves died in the old man. Let's move on to our horizontal. This is a passion project for me. This, this idea has been so helpful to me. Think about being an ambassador. An ambassador goes to a foreign land and they're a representation of the king. Let's assume that I went to, I don't know, Japan. I might be the tallest thing Japan has ever seen. I don't look like Japan. I don't, I don't know Japanese. I can get down on some Japanese food. I don't understand their culture or their slang. Is that necessary to be an ambassador? I'm going to tell you, it is not a priority. We as Christians, we are members of a foreign land. When I was adopted into Christ, my new home is in heaven. I come from a kingdom and I am representing Him here in a nation and in a world that I am an alien to. I am not of this world. Maybe you could say it like this. I don't have to use the language of the world. I don't have to raise my kids the way the world does. I don't have to think the way the world does. I don't have to adhere to your music or what you think is funny or how you view sex or any of the rest of it. I don't have to do that because I'm not from here. I'm a new creation, bought and paid for, reconciled by a God who is in heaven, and I serve Him. Isn't that good news? You thought this was going to be a heavy message. It's like, yes! I, I'm not from here. Amen to that. Maybe I'm a little more excited than you are. Okay, transition. If we're ambassadors, then we have to have a message. And the message that we find is in verse 19. Number two. If we are a new creation, or ambassadors, then we also have a ministry of reconciliation. We see this in verses 18 and 19. Reconciliation, you see that in word mentioned a few times, is, a, is an accounting term. It's a term that's meant to say that we have an exchange of good for services that is equal to another. We reconcile an account. You see, as a sinner... The Bible says you are indebted to God. And it's a debt you could, you could never pay. You are living in His creation and you have rebelled against Him. Your debt is so offensive, you'll never pay Him back. And so we must ask the question, what do I do if I can't pay? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. No garnishing of paychecks. No community service. No purgatory. No second chances. Hell. Eternal punishment. Anguish and separation from God is the punishment for your inability to pay. Note that that's also not the end of the chapter. The end of the saying. The end of the Bible. Maybe you could summarize it like this. But God who isn't just a God of wrath he's a, or a God of justice. He's a God of mercy and love and kindness. We notice here in the text that you're reading, 18 and 19, that God does not come. He, or sorry, He comes, but He doesn't come to collect. He comes to reconcile through Jesus. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Think about what it would be like if a person you owed walked into the room. And they're walking towards you and you're like, oh man, I don't have the money. I don't, 
I'm in real trouble now. This is the collection moment. And instead of coming to collect, they come to forgive and reconcile. They come to make amends. He was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's a loving God in heaven. Not an angry one. And He sent His Son to pay for every sin that we were indebted to God. So, the wages of sin is death. But, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was five years old when I went around to the corner drugstore and uh, stole a moon pie. Anybody know what a moon pie is? Amen. On my way back, I'm, uh, you know, I got crumbs on my face and I'm kind of licking my fingers and my mom recognizes that I had just been eating something and my eyes widen and the interrogation begins. <laughs> it was a short interrogation, but because before I knew it, I'm being like dragged by my mother back to the corner drugstore. And by the grace of God, the cashier saw the flames bursting in my mother's eyes and she said that the only thing necessary for me to do to make all things right was just pay for the moon pie and we would consider it all good. Now when you're five years old and you steal something as valuable as a moon pie and you get caught, you're thinking the punishment's like 10 to 20. <laughs> the only thing I had in my pocket was a baseball card, some pocket lint, and a moon pie wrapper. And tears began to well up in my eyes as I realized I couldn't pay. And then yet, there was my mom, as quick as I had that thought, offering the like dime or the quarter or whatever it was to the cashier. My mom had done no wrong. And yet she came to me and offered what was necessary for reconciliation on my behalf. You see the beautiful picture there? I didn't have any money to pay, and yet I was free from any condemnation or the, you know, doing 10 to 20 in the pen because of a work somebody else had done. Now, the illustration kind of breaks down because I tell you there was weeping and gnashing of teeth when we got home. But the point still remains that if you have, whether you think you have never stolen a moon pie or you don't really see yourself as that bad of a person, you need to res resolve yourself to this idea. Brothers and sisters, you've sinned against God and you can't pay it back. And praise God that He sent His Son to make a way where there was no way, to reconcile a debt that no one could ever reconcile to any who trust in Him by faith. I have a son, his name's Samuel. One of my sons, he's five. I don't think he's stolen any moon pies. <laughs> but I'll tell you that I have quarters or cash ready on hand when he needs a moment where he needs to be reconciled on my behalf. Because what has happened from my mother is a lesson I've learned that now I take on as a ministry of my own. So some takeaways. The vertical relationship. How does this affect us vertically? Maybe you're in here and you don't know if Christ has reconciled your sin on your behalf. Maybe the Lord is doing something in your heart. I pray that He is. Where you're sitting in your little chair and in your mind or in your heart, your tears are starting to well up and you're realizing, I can't pay. I want to tell you that there's hope too for you. As Aaron always says, today is the day of salvation. If you want to transfer your trust from who you are 
over to Christ. It was a very expensive thing, but it is not a difficult one. You can talk to any of the pastors. I'll be standing right there after the service. I would love to talk to you about eternity if the opportunity presented itself. Please don't be ashamed of that. And our horizontal relationship. I want you to consider this, Christians. Think about this. Jesus, or sorry, God is the offended party, and He's the one who initiates the reconciliation. Colossians 1 has this picture where it says that we are alienated from God and we had evil deeds in our heart. Think about how far God is from our sinful state. He's, God's in the throne room. He's happy. He's at peace. He don't need us. He's all good. His creation does not affect Him and His perfection. And we are sinning against Him. He has every right to squish us like a bug. But what does He do? Think about how far Ephesians um, says that He descended. Jesus descended to the earth. How far do you have to come from holiness and perfectness and righteousness to the dust and mire and muck of this world? We owed Him and He comes to us. If you're in this room as an application and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I've got some strife with some people, but I was certainly the offended party and I've forgiven them in my heart and I'm ready to reconcile as soon as they humble themselves and we have this conversation. Praise God that He didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that for me. I hated God. People thought I was like a pretty good person. I was rebelling against God in my heart. I was dead in my sin. And while I was offending God, He came to you and to me. And then He says that the ministry of reconciliation that Christ provided for you as an example is now your ministry. Brothers and sisters, if there's strife between you and another, don't wait. Because after all, you're a new creation. The old way of thinking and behaving, that's past. You don't have to do that anymore. You're an ambassador for the King. And you have a ministry, a message of reconciliation. Number three, if we're a creation, if we are a new creation, then we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. This is verse 16. He says, from now, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. From now on, since your rebirth, since the moment of your salvation, you are reborn. Well, there's a whole... I could teach on that, but it actually happens in another way. It's just very quickly. It's about the same thing. Paul says to the church in Corinth and to you and I today, if you are a new creation, stop thinking with external eyes only. Stop keeping score. To the church back then, he's saying, stop worrying about birthright or your station in life or education or fluidity of speech or who's a Jew and who's a Gentile. Today, the Spirit says to us, stop judging people or ranking people by degree or salary or race or car or neighborhood. And maybe in this church, I could say, stop regarding people as to whether they can work well in your social setting. Stop regarding people based off of your idea of what a man or a woman is. Stop regarding your brothers and sisters in Christ and basing your ranking off them off of where they send their kids to school or what their parenting methods are like. It may be right and it may be wrong, but we don't regard one another in that way anymore. 
Regard means to understand, to know, and observe. And we don't do any of that according to the flesh. We do it in a different way. We do it in the Spirit. And this is where we get to the second half of 16 when he says, we used to regard Jesus in the flesh. We learned about who Jesus was by watching Him walk and talk and eat and, and laugh and do His thing. But now He isn't here. He's in the Spirit. And where is that Spirit? In the body of believers. Beloved, we have to grasp this. I learn about Jesus by how you live and behave. I am ministered to in the Spirit, gleaning more of what God is like by how you represent Him. And you have the playbook. And you have the Spirit of God. Everything necessary to do it. We need to stop collecting data by what we can see. It's an interesting thing going to a, like a football team on the first day of camp. For those, I know some of you are like, I hate sports analogies. This isn't one. Just bear with me. You know, you walk into the locker room the first day and you don't know anybody. And so it immediately becomes this like ranking system. Everybody's chest is out. We're standing real tall and you're seeing who's got abs and who looks mean and who has a scar down their face and who looks tough and who doesn't. Because you have no other metric. You're just regarding each other according to the flesh. And then my experience in college is some of those guys that I'm evaluating and sizing up, I ended up living with. One of them sitting right there, Chris Jones. At first you think he's a broad-shouldered, big-handed, fast-footed man, and you're intimidated of him, and you're worried about if he's going like, to knock your block off. But i got to tell you, my memories of my relationship with Chris Jones have nothing to do with plays. I don't remember what he did on the field. I remember being on the foot of each other's bed, crying and confessing to one another wrestling with what it means to be a Christian man. I remember wanting to fight and cheer for Him, not because I wanted Him to do a good job, but because I saw Christ in Him. I remember learning what it meant to be a Christian by watching Him grow. There's a moment in time, and I'm not sure when it is, when we move from regarding one another to the flesh into regarding one another in the Spirit. And I pray that we can make that transition as fast as possible. The vertical relationship. Just a quick one here. This is just a caveat. I want you guys to know this. This is something we have to talk about. I think it's growing in the, in the church today. That it is better that Christ isn't here. Do you, you understand that? That there were so many people that saw Christ in the flesh and they denied Him. Ephesians says that if you've received the Spirit of God, that is the seal, the mark of your salvation. It's the stamp of guarantee that I am saved. Jesus Himself says on the mount, it is better that I leave that the Spirit may come with all of you. And I know you and I have all prayed. I think there's even a worship song out there that's like, I want to see you, Lord. I just want to see, oh Lord, if I could just see you, then I would believe. I would really behave if I just knew you were real. And if I could just, if I could just see your face, then I would understand. That is asking God to be a Christian without faith. We are in a church age where we are to grow by the hearing of the Word. By the seeing in faith, not by the seeing in the flesh. Horizontal relationship. This is simple. I could go on forever about this. It's a big topic. I'll just say it like this. Stop keeping score. See others the way Christ sees them. 
1 Corinthians 13 has this passage. You guys have probably heard of it. Paul's talking about love. And he's saying, if I could you know, do miracles and speak in tongues and talk to angels and move mountains with my faith and give all the mountain money to the poor just for God, but if I don't have love, I, have, I am, he says, I am nothing. And then he goes on, as you famously know, to define love. And one of the ways he defines it, he says, love keeps no record of wrong. How much of your brain space is filled with a record of other people's sins? Sin against you. Sins that you've witnessed. Sins that you've heard about. How much of your story in the church is riddled with things like insensitive pastoring? People who didn't invest in you. Life groups that maybe isolated you or didn't make you feel good. Those who've rejected you or leaders that have lied to you. We get offended and people act sinfully and the wound becomes so hard to close. And so what do we do? You guys know the answer. You've been in church long enough. We just reshuffle the deck. We go from one church to another. We get a new spouse. We get a new life group. We get a new set of friends. We get a new YouTube channel. We get a new thing. We get a new doctrine. We get a new denomination. We just rotate back on the carousel of not reconciling. We're in the ministry of avoiding. Beloved, the church is bleeding by self-inflicted paper cuts of unreconciliation. We're not to do this. Now, no one's asking you to be perfect. And there are tons of situations where maybe a separation for a season in the marriage is helpful and good for its reconciliation or going to a new church is the right thing to do. I'm not trying to be in absolute here. I am saying that the ministry of reconciliation isn't something to be avoided. The ministry of reconciliation isn't just forgiving somebody privately in your heart and moving on. We are not to be a people marred by irreconcilable differences. Jesus has reconciled us completely. And one of the benefits of that is that we no longer need to keep the ledger of sin and a record of it in our own heart. And you say to me, I meet with a lot of students and they're pretty dramatic. So they're on my couch and they're like, yes, but how am I actually supposed to do that? This person broke up with me and now they're in the church and we just have this unspoken rule that that's their side of the church and this is my side of the church and we walk out separate entrances and we don't make eye contact and that's just how it works. Ladies, I know this happens to you. I got five sisters. I've seen this mad or done at the highest level. That's why we get to number four. How do we do it? The love of Christ. If we are a new creation, then we are controlled by the love of Christ. This is 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. We've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who might live no longer live for them, might live no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says he's controlled by the love of Christ. Controlled is this kind of funky Greek word. It has kind of two sides to the meaning. It's hard to understand in English. It basically means controlled is to be um, hemmed in, fenced in. My options are narrowed because of the love of Christ. And I am propelled. There's a wind in my sails, as it were. I'm pushed forward. The, one of the versions of the Bible, I think it's the New American Standard, it uses this great version in the translation. It says, I'm compelled by the love of Christ. Paul says, I'm not doing what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not 
wearing funny clothes or getting shipwrecked and beating. I'm not having all these trials because I want to be famous or because I want to show how extreme I can be. I'm doing it because of the love of Christ. I'm growing and understanding more and more what Christ did for me. And because of that, I am so hemmed in. I'm compelled and pushed forward to pursue the ministry that He has asked for me. Paul says that what he did in the ministry was because he was more and more compelled by Christ. Maybe you could ask it like this. Paul is saying the love of Christ has power over me. Does the love of Christ have power over you? Verse 15, he says that he died for all. We need to talk this through. and We're going to be quick here. Just to be clear, Jesus' death did not accomplish salvation for everybody. That's what I said. That's a false doctrine called universalism. Jesus Christ died for all that would be saved. Now, to be clear, Jesus is valuable enough as a character in His perfection. He is God that His sacrifice could reconcile all people. But we know that there have been in the past, those today and those in the future, that will reject the offer of Christ. When Paul is talking about he died for all, he's saying all the saved. When he died for all of the saved people. And you might say to yourself, well that just seems a little unfair. I would ask you, how many people have you saved into eternity? If we're keeping score. Okay, moving on. We don't have time for that. He goes on, those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. If Jesus died for us, it's fitting that we live for Him. And so the question I have for you is simple. Can you confess in your heart that you are living for Jesus? It's that simple. You know, this is what it was like in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are living perfectly for God. They're in perfect relationship. As you know me, I always share this verse. They're walking with Him in the cool of the day. I need to make that into a t-shirt or something. The moment Adam and Eve decided to live for themselves was the moment it all fell apart. And God sends us on this miraculous, romantic (laughs) journey through time and space, where through the Scripture He says, I'm going to take your mess up and I'm going to make it right. And as we look forward past the cross into the Revelation, there's this great verse kind of looking forward to us being restored back to what it means to be in perfect relationship with God. And it says this. This is from the King James Version, so you're about to see some thousand of these. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive Your glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things and for Thy pleasure they were created. Beloved, you were made by God for His pleasure. And in your new creation, you now have the freedom to do what He has asked. Amen to that. The best example of this is obviously Jesus. You think Jesus ever spent a moment of His life thinking about Himself? No, He was living for God. His heart was compelled by the Spirit towards God. He is knowing. He knows that He's going to die. He's going to be beaten. And yet He marches up the hill in Jerusalem. Here's some applications. What's your motivation for ministry in your vertical relationship? You know that everybody's in professional ministry? Every Christian? 
Some just figured out how to get paid for it. That was funnier when I wrote it down. <laughs> the motivation for your ministry, is it guilt? You got that record book of sin, messed up, I got to do a bunch of right to balance my ledger. Maybe it's like me, you struggle with performance, it's brownie points. I want God to know that I was worth saving. None of those things are fruitful or helpful. The love of Christ needs to be our motivation. The romancing that Christ came and died for all should eternally compel us and push us forward. We should never get sick of that message. Horizontal. One thing to watch out for, there's a million of them. Men and women, I want you to be careful of this as I've observed this church. To live for the love of Christ, or to be motivated by the love of Christ, does not mean to live for things that Christ likes. Men, to be a provider for your family is a good thing, but to live to provide for your family is sin. Moms and dads, to have children, praise God. I'm going to have a dedication today. We, have, we could do 30 of them in the next couple weeks. Praise God for all the babies that are born. To have babies is a blessing from the Lord, but to live for them is idolatry, and it's not good. Live for Christ. To have good health and work out, that's a wonderful thing, but to live for your body is not good. Live for Christ. For your job, for your, you know, your home, how clean your home is. These are good things, but they are not the main thing. So let's put the pieces together. Christ has made us a new creation. And as such, you become an ambassador of Him. You become an ambassador with a ministry and a message of reconciliation. This is your life. And that ministry should force you to see people not in regard to the flesh, but in the Spirit. And all this is possible by the love of Christ who compels you forward. I want to show you one more picture. We're almost done. This guy on the right, his name is Eric Fitzgerald. And on October 2nd, 2006, he received a call that his pregnant wife was hit on a head-on collision on a back Georgia road and that he was now a widower with a 17-month-old daughter. A few months later, the first guy I showed you, Matt, was standing in a courtroom awaiting sentencing for two counts of manslaughter. When in the back of the room, a hand gets raised. And Eric walks to the front of the room. And he begins to share with the judge that he knows what it's like to be on trial. To be found guilty. And there's no way out. But he said that in his life, in his experience as a Christian, he realized that God could have enacted justice, or God could have enacted vengeance, sorry, and yet he extended grace. And so this man is standing mere feet away from the person who ruined his life. And he says, less than a sentence. Two years later, Matt's walking into a grocery store on the anniversary of the accident. I couldn't write this. And guess who's in the grocery store? Eric and his daughter. And what do we do as Christians? We avert our eyes. We bring shame. And we, we see a wound that's too hard to bear. And we turn. And Matt runs into his truck. And Eric follows him. And knocks on the window. And you're thinking, oh man, here we go. The fist fight occurs. Or the yelling match. No finger pointing. No fighting. Just a tearful embrace. 
They're now friends and attend the same church together. How is this possible? Because Eric isn't living for himself. Eric has a mission. Eric is an ambassador of the Lord who has reconciled and saved him. What's unfortunate is I know of thousands or hundreds of stories in this very church where we are dealing on a very thin thread of unreconcilable differences where, the, where it's just so hard and so tenuous and so, so difficult that we're about to just fracture and go our separate ways, get back on the carousel and start again. And I understand those stories. In ministry, that's just a part of the pain you have to deal with. I'm just here to tell you, beloved, that's a better story. And it's no more difficult because it was already paid for. Verse 21, we'll close with this. Get ready to bring the band up here. For our sake, He made, sin, he made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You might be saying to yourself, that's a good story, but God is a God of justice and something needed to be done when something is wrong. I agree with you. I, I can totally agree. God didn't just send sin and forgive it into the ether. What did He do? He took every one of your and I's sins in all of history and He laid them on Jesus as a payment. To reconcile with a brother isn't to be unjust. To go and work through this isn't to be unfair or, or, or too, um, falling too far into grace. Reconciliation is nothing more than a recognition that it was all already paid for. Let's pray. Father, thank You today for Your Word, for the hope that we can find in this message. We can't get through this without You. And we just learned this morning that You are so here, so near, so dear to our heart. We praise You, God, that there can be a body of people in this church who I've seen in so many ways work through reconciliation, fight for one another in the faith. I'm so encouraged by the work that they do and the faith that they have. I just pray, Father, that if there be any here who've been convict or conflicted in any way as to whether to, to work towards reconciliation, that they would make that step today in some way and that it would be a praise to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.